We're going to again start our lesson with those that are here. Welcome to week 20 of our lessons on uh, theology. As you can see on my slide, we're introducing a new topic. Thank you, Mike. We'll be taking up the doctrine of man in anthropology. So a quick word of prayer before we dive in and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for a church that teaches doctrine. Thank you for people who want to learn more about you. Lord, bless this lesson. Um, Speak through this lesson and uh, bless the hearing of your word that we might glorify you more fully, Lord. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So a long time ago, King David stood looking up at the heavens and as he beheld the stars and the moon, he was prompted to ask a very important question. You can find this in Psalm 8, verse 4. He said, what is man, O Lord, that you would be mindful of him or care for him? And this question that King David asked, what is man, introduces our next section of theology known as the doctrine of man or anthropology. As per usual, these These ologies come from Greek words. This one comes from anthropos, the Greek word for man or humanity. So anthropology is the study of humanity. And as many of you know or have experienced, some of you probably took anthropology uh, at KU or some secular university. Fortunately, I did not. But uh, anthropology, as it's taught on the Hill, is taught from a strictly secular perspective from the perspective of scientific naturalism, which is the opposite of biblical supernaturalism. So if you've been taught anthropology at a university, you were taught an anthropology, a doctrine of man that's devoid from a creator God or supernatural. And so what we're going to do this morning, like we do with any topic, whether it be science, psychology, sociology, economics, politics, art, education, you name it, we want to look at these things through a biblical standpoint so that we can appropriately understand who we are and how we fit in God's created realm. So this is a very important topic. Uh, We have studied bibliology, the doctrine of God the Father, the doctrine of God the Son, the doctrine of God the Spirit, but why anthropology? Why is this so important? Let me list a few reasons for you. First of all, we all recognize that there are some very big questions that we've all at one time or another asked, like, what makes me different from the animals? Why do I have logic, reason, intellect? Why am I able to worship and relate to my creator? So what is man, like King David asked? Secondly, it's very important because if you think about the fact that God created in six days, the last thing that he created was man. This was the crowning achievement to glorify him. And we'll talk about what it means to be created in the image of God today and how special that is. But it also, an anthropology based on scripture, helps us understand who we are in relation to the creator, how we are to relate to him, and how we are to relate to other human beings created in the image of God. And this, like J.D. and I were talking about, has a lot of practical implications. Not only can we address things like environment when we understand who we are in comparison with God's creation, we understand other things like the value and the sanctity of life, both at the beginning of life as it relates to abortion and at the end of life. It relates to things like uh, eugenics. It also has important uh, ramifications on things like race. How do we view the issue of race? We'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, Many, many things that we could talk about that make this a very important topic. We won't have a lot of time for that. But also, 
anthropology, a biblical anthropology, helps us refute these false philosophies like the reigning paradigm taught in secular anthropology. The idea that man is nothing more than material, that the body defines a person, or that man is nothing more than a, an accidental collection of molecules evolved from lower life forms with no intentional design or purpose. That is what the world teaches us, that you are here by chance and nothing you do has real value or eternal significance. Someday man will just become extinct like the animals and that's it. So we will take up biblical anthropology so that we can see through the falsity of those ideas. Those are just a few reasons why biblical anthropology is important, and I'm not going to touch on all of it today. We've got a number of weeks on this, but here's what I'm going to look at. Here's my outline for today. Four things. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on the first one because my sources did. It happens to be one of my favorite topics, so it's not me spending a lot of time on sudden creation of man, Adam as a real historical person. Like I said, we'll talk a little bit about race, one of the applications of a biblical anthropology. We'll also look at what it means to be created in God's image and why God created man. Then we'll look at something very interesting. What is it that makes us man? And by the way, when I use the word man, it's because that's how God termed it. It doesn't mean that, well, it's not a, a sexist term. It's a biblical term. It stands for humankind, understand that. The essential nature of man, and there's some different views on that we'll look at. And then finally, we'll finish with a brief overview of the origin of the soul. So I hope you learn as much as I did in preparing this lesson, and as per usual, have to give credit, because I am not a biblical scholar or a theologian. If it weren't for John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew's book, Biblical Doctrine, I wouldn't be teaching this lesson. This is almost straight out of the pages, and we just lost our connection for a second. And I also insert a little bit of thought from Wayne Grudem, as per usual, in Bible Doctrine. So I'm grateful to them, and I have to attribute my work to them, unlike uh, Ed Litton if those of you know who he is. So let's start with the first part of our lesson, the sudden creation of man. The topic of origins, as many of you know, is one of the most uh, significant biblical battlegrounds over the last century. Uh, it's been an ongoing and very serious debate, the veracity of the creation account. And that's not just between the Christian world and the secular world. Unfortunately, and I can say this from experience, it can be very difficult to discuss, even within the church. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians who give uh, lip service to the authority of Scripture still prefer to listen to men with PhDs behind their name, and the authority of science trumps the authority of Scripture. So we're going to try to correct that today um, and talk about these things. I'm not going to go into a full discussion, by the way, on the different interpretations of Genesis. That is beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But the position we hold here at Redemption Hill Church, certainly the one that I espouse, is that of sudden creation. And we'll talk about why that is so important, particularly when it comes to a literal Adam and a literal Eve. This is the view of Scripture, by the way, and it's the context for understanding the creation of man on day six. So let's see what the Scripture has to say about sudden creation. Don't take my word for it or our church's doctrinal position. Let's see what the Scriptures have to say about our Creator's ability to create suddenly. Let's start with Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2. Says This is a synopsis of Genesis 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work 
that he had done, indicating that he had done all of this in six literal days and rested on the seventh. This was so important that God actually wrote this with his own finger in stone as he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. This is from the fourth commandment. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Not too hard to understand. Even a child can understand this. For some reason, many Christians want to allegorize this, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments. We don't do that with the other Ten Commandments. But Moses felt like it was important enough to reiterate it in Exodus 31, 17. Again, he says, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Past tense. I happen to love Psalm 33. Verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth, verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Isn't this an awesome creator God who can speak and things are created ex nihilo, out of nothing? The prophet Jeremiah was moved to say, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Paul, in Romans 1.20, this is a text we're familiar with. We probably don't often think of it as uh, uh, affirmation of sudden creation, but listen to what Paul said. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Well, for how long has it been clearly perceived, these power, powerful attributes? Well, he says, ever since the creation of the world. Well, is he talking about in the things that have been made, the rocks and the trees? No, they won't be judged. He says, they are without excuse. The people who were clearly there from the beginning perceiving what God had created. We'll look at that more in a minute. I also love Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created, past tense, all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let me just say this before we go on to Adam in specific as a historical person. MacArthur and Mayhew made a big deal of this. I'm actually shortening it for those of you that know that I love this doctrine dearly. But it is very important to understand these truths of sudden creation because if we lose these truths we lose some key truths and we lose and diminish the importance and the understanding of God's power and wisdom in creating suddenly. And I want to just say this to skeptics who say, you're painting too narrow of a road. This is not a salvation issue. I'd never said that. My skeptics will say that, skeptics of this doctrine. But all we're saying is it's important to understand sudden creation because that is what scripture says. And we lose key truths in an understanding of God's power and glory if we lose those truths. The creation of the universe and the creation of Adam was not a long evolutionary process. The glory and the power of God were manifested in a sudden creation. So let's move on and talk about this man Adam as a historical person. This is another contentious issue of debate, not just within the secular world, like I said, but even within the church, unfortunately. The church has affirmed historically since the beginning of the church that Adam was a, a, a historical man. But unfortunately, in the last 150 years, with the advent of Darwin, some claim this isn't the case. There are even 
church ministries, parachurch ministries, I won't name names, but you'd be very familiar with people that want the church to accept evolutionary theory and blend pagan theory of evolution with the doctrine of creation. It's known as theistic evolution. But Genesis presents Adam as a real historical man, not an evolved being who allegorically just represents humanity. And we're going to talk about this because it's extremely important. In fact, Jesus spoke on this subject. Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus said, and he's speaking in A.D. 30, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus claimed that man was a part of the creation from the beginning. And you can see that represented at the top of the slide, what Moses wrote, that humans came on day six, like Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, not, as the bottom section shows, the world's view, and unfortunately some in the church, who believed that man came towards the end of creation, which would call into question, was Jesus just pre-scientific? Did he not understand the laws of physics and Big Bang? No, he created the laws of physics. They stand at attention when he tells them what to do, like when he wants to walk on water or raise the dead or feed 5,000 from a few loaves and fish. That's the Jesus we worship. That's what he said. So, by the way, uh, the New Testament does confirm the Old Testament, not just these words of Jesus. Did you know that the New Testament authors allude to or reference Genesis 1 and 2 30 times, and every time they do it, It's not in an allegorical or figurative or poetic way. It's as if they believed the words of Moses were true narrative history. I think that can be instructive for us. So let's continue on talking about Adam. He was a historical person, and this is evidenced by the fact that he's connected with other historical persons. Genesis tells us Adam is the father of Cain and Abel and Seth. It says he he had uh, conjugal relations with Eve to um, bear Cain and Seth. Genesis 5.3 tells us a little more detail that he fathered Seth at the age of 130 years and that he died when he was 930 years old. Um, These are details that just, you know, when when scholars look at these things, they can't be taken as poetic or figurative because they're talking as if this is reality. Then we we can look at the long list of Adam's descendants who lived and died until we come to Noah in Genesis 5, that confirms that Adam was a specific person. I know a lot of churches don't begin teaching Genesis until chapter 12 when Abraham suddenly shows up. And you're never taught this in some of these churches, but they came from other people. Where did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, come from? Well, they're connected through the genealogies to real people who came from a real man and Luke In chapter 3, verse 38, if you look there, you'll see that Luke, in Jesus' genealogy, mentions Adam as the first father of that genealogy. This is also what you find in 1 Chronicles 1, verse 1, includes Adam in its genealogy. By the way, the Apostle Paul clearly believed in Adam as a real man in in, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and in verse 14, he tells us, sin came into the world through one man, And then verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So Paul viewed Adam and Moses as real historical people. Now you might be wondering again why I'm spending so much time on this. I assure you I do love this topic, but uh, this was a considerable part of the time in the textbook I'm teaching from. I've actually shortened it, believe it or not. But this is not a trivial matter. Sudden creation 
And the creation of Adam as a literal historical person is not a trivial matter. It's foundational for understanding the origin and the history of the entire human race. It's foundational for understanding the nature of humanity, the origin of our sin, the origin of death, not just human, but also of animal death, and also the need for salvation, obviously, after that death. It also is foundational for us understanding all of the historical events that come in Genesis and for the future of mankind. So this is not a trivial matter. Adam was a real person. Now, I mentioned that um, understanding these things from a biblical lens has uh, implications on certain cultural things like today. And I listed a number of them. One of them that I think bears a little bit of discussion is the issue of race. So this falls under the the, um, umbrella of biblical anthropology. So let's talk about that for a second. Have you ever wondered how can there be so many races in the world if we all just come from Adam and Eve? If we're all just descendants of Adam and Eve, let's talk a minute about this. Let's talk about the word race. Are there really different races? We can look to scripture. We get a lot of answers from God's word. Acts 17.26 says, God from one man made every nation of men. So it seems that scripture teaches us there is only one race, and that's the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. And of course, if you look at Genesis 1.26-28, it tells us God created two people in his image, male and female, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and told them, to be fruitful and multiply. That's also very important. So Adam and Eve are the father and mother of the human race. And of course, their children had children, their children's children had children, their children's children had children, so on and so forth. Until at one point in history, when man became so evil, God decided to erase all of the human population except for eight people. We learn this in Genesis 7. Verse 13 says, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And then verse 23, and only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. God reduced the world population down to eight people who were protected inside the ark during a devastating worldwide flood. Those eight people later walked off of the ark. And according to Genesis 9.19, from these... The people of the whole earth were dispersed. What does that mean, dispersed? This is very interesting. We don't often think about this, but we can understand this better from Genesis 11. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people and they all have one language. These are generations after Noah now. The world is populated again. They are very evil. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. So, in a unique judgment, the Lord dispersed them from their over-the-face of all the earth. So that's pretty clear and concise. So we've got a lot of people who are the descendants of the eight people that came off the ark. They've been scattered or dispersed over all the earth, which explains that we all still come from Adam through Noah, and we are all still one race, and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. It's not hard to understand. Okay, so there's still the question, how then did we get different people groups with different colors? if we're all one race. Remember, uh, we all have uh, pigment in our bodies called melanin. Melanin, which depending on different variables, 
produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess, which is brown. Hopefully you'll see this slide pop up here in just a minute. Nope. Did we lose it, Bryce? This always seems to happen to me. I'm going to re-plug. My graphics never work. The one main skin color, brown. Several genes, this is known as polygenic, several genes and many other variables control the amount of melanin produced and thus we get a variability of skin shade. Yeah, it's not coming up. Bryce, tell me what I need to do. Anyway, it is easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation. Am I doing anything wrong here? Okay. Let's try this again. And now we have to go quite a bit forward. This is pretty cool, so I want you to see this. Aha, there we go. Like I said, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin variability in just one generation. This is from um, a blog, I think it's babygaga.com. They highlight 20 sets of twins born with different colors of skin. These are twins from the same parents, okay? And there are many others. We see examples of this. So it's really interesting to find out that we think about what Adam and Eve, when they came, God would have front-loaded their DNA with so much information, variability, that God placed in them a combination of variability that could produce all the different skin shades that we see. These same combinations would have been present in Noah on the ark and all the other people. And then God dispersed them from the Tower of Babel. Some people were isolated. Gene pools were isolated. Population genetics shifted. We have different cultures, different skin shades becoming predominant. And here we are today. Since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we're just different shades of brown. I want to demonstrate that. This is white paper. You can see I'm not white. I'm a shade of brown. If you took a, what we call a black or an African-American person put a black piece of paper next to their face, you'd see they are not black. They're just a different shade of brown. The point is, we are all related. We are all distantly related through Adam, a real man, and through Noah. This is what the Bible teaches. By the way, this is what <clears throat> secular science has shown us. And I'll get back to theology in a minute here. This is not an apologetics talk. And, uh, well, we don't have graphics, it seems. My computer it hates. Uh, Twenty years ago, after the Human Genome Project finished mapping the, the human uh, genome, the scientists unanimously said that the word race is a social construct. And they said unanimously, oh, here it is. These keep coming in and out. I'll give up on this in a minute. They said... The concept of race is not a scientific one, it is a social one. So, the secular scientists agreed with what the Bible told us a long, long time ago, which is that we are all one blood, one race. Again, this is what we learn from a biblical perspective made from one man, all races. By the way, did you know that the Apostle Paul confirmed this? He gave some very clear teaching on race in his epistles to the church, Galatians 3.28 explains that believers equally share in salvation and blessings in Christ, regardless of race, gender, social status. He wrote to Colossians in chapter 3 of Colossians, the renewal of Christ in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free man. 
He said salvation is equal to all groups regardless of skin color. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, then we'll move on to what it means to be created in God's image. The last book of the Bible reiterates the universal blessings of all people groups. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 says that representatives of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation will be saved by Christ and will reign when the kingdom comes to earth. Revelation 7 says that both the tribes of Israel and the people from all nations will be saved. And then finally, Revelation 22.2 says that the leaves of the tree of life maintain healing and harmony among the nations. When the heaven on earth comes, there will be no more ethnic or national hostility. It will just be harmony. So again, a biblical anthropology helps us understand these things. Our relationship to the Father, our relationship to fellow human beings, all who are descended from Adam, one blood, one race. And that's fun to learn, isn't it? Isn't that cut through so much? I wish people understood this. Let's talk about what it means to be created in God's image. And we're going to talk importantly as well about what it means why God created man. <clears throat> if you think back to Genesis 1, the first 25 verses kind of give us a little detail on the formation of the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, uh, the animals, all that, but it's just kind of in passing detail. Not a lot of detail is given, and then all of a sudden in Genesis 1.26, we come to something different. God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then we move on to Genesis 2, which is not a retelling of Genesis 1. It's just a microcosm focusing in on what Adam witnessed in the Garden of Eden. And half of the verses in, in chapter 2 are dedicated solely to this crowning glory of God's creation, the sudden creation of Adam and Eve. Twelve of the 25 verses are dedicated to them. It is so important to be made in the image of God. This is where we get, by the way, capital punishment. You know, Genesis 9-6 highlights what it means. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Paul, we referenced this earlier, wrote in Romans 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then James in chapter 3, verse 9, talked about what damage we can do to each other with our tongues. We, we bless the Lord and our Father with the tongue, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. So immediately after declaring that man is made in God's own image and likeness, God then gives man a unique role in creation. This is important because it differentiates us from the animals. And I want to tell you a quick story about why this is so important as we look at what role God gave man and why we're different from the animals. One time, a long time ago, Tim, you might remember this, we were with one of your little buddies his parents, I can safely say, are pagans. Um, she has a pagan website. And I, I, I was prompted to ask this little boy as a fourth grader, I said, I'm going to give you a scenario. We're driving down the road, and there's a baby and a kitten side by side on the road. It's a narrow road. You're going so fast, you've got to swerve one way or the other. Which one do you kill? Do you know that little boy without missing a beat said, the baby, kill the baby. And I said, why? And he said, because there's too many humans this is what secular anthropology teaches. Ask somebody that question sometime. If you ask enough people, you'll hear that. 
The world says man is not special. We are just another animal that will someday go extinct. But this is not what scripture tells us. Genesis 1 says God called man to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. He said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So mankind as a whole through Adam is given unique authority to rule over and subdue God's creation. To the environmentalist, no, that does not mean we destroy it. But we are put in a unique position to rule over it. This was affirmed by the psalmist in Psalm 8, verse 6. You have given him, man, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. The psalmist also declared in Psalm 115, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. And then Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9 says that in the world to come, mankind will rule over the earth. Man is not another animal. Man is made in the image of God, able to have relationship with God. And according to Revelation 21, verse 1, Revelation 22, verse 5, even in eternity, man will reign here on earth forever in the new earth. So let's finish before we go to the next section with a very important question. Remember I said anthropology from a biblical perspective helps us answer some really big questions. And so many people are just trying to figure out their purpose. Why am I here? What is my purpose? A lot of people, the world will tell you it's to be a good person, right? So scripture actually gives us the answer to that. And I'll go ahead and tell you, man is to give God glory. That's why he was created. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7 says, As God is calling his sons and daughters to come to him, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So right there it tells us people were created for his glory. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that everything we do should be done to the glory of God. That is why we are here. If anybody ever says, what is the purpose of man? Why are you here? Our role is to glorify God. Let's move on to point number three. This is interesting. The essential nature of man. So now that we've established from Scripture that man was created... In the image of God, and we talked about that a little bit, let's turn our, point, our attention to this topic. And I'm going to ask you, how many parts are there to a man? Not, I'm not talking anatomy-wise, but what is it that constitutes a man? I hear some, I have heard some guesses. <clears throat> are you just a physical body? Are you defined as a person by your physical body, and then once you die, you cease to exist? Or do you think that, the bo- that a human is defined essentially by two parts, body and soul, the Im- immaterial part that lives on forever, or, or spirit, body, soul, spirit? <clears throat> That's one view we'll talk about. Some people believe that there are actually three parts, body, soul, and spirit, that this third part, the spirit, is the part that allows you to communicate with God, that the soul Uh, is dealing more with your intellect, your ability to reason, to to have a will, to make decisions. This is called, the three-part, body, soul, and spirit, trichotomy, or trichotism. Trichotomism. I don't even know how to say it. 
<clears throat> now, they do have a couple scripture, scripture reference. Listen to this, John 4, 24, to support the body, soul, and spirit, the spirit being the part that worships. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's a good point. They also reference Philippians 3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Unfortunately, for the trichotomists, they don't really offer any differentiation for the word spirit from soul, but it does seem to indicate the soul worships. So let's move to another view. This is called dichotomy, which is just man as two parts, body and an immaterial part that lives on forever, the eternal soul slash spirit. <clears throat> Both terms in the dichotomy viewpoint are used interchangeably, and I'm going to show you some scriptures. They, they seem to indicate the same thing, and you'll see that there are a lot of scriptures that do indicate that the soul and the spirit do the same thing. So again, in the dichotomous view, two parts, body, soul, slash spirit. <clears throat> there is a third view I guess I'll mention. We talked about it earlier, the one of scientific naturalism, the opposite of biblical supernaturalism. And of course, this is man's view that we are nothing more than matter. And there is no invisible eternal world once you die, you're dead. And we reject that because from front to back, the Bible definitely teaches that every human being has an eternal soul that's destined for one of two places after death. So we reject that. We're left with either dichotomy, man as two parts, or trichotomy, man as three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Both correctly affirm that man is more than matter. So biblically, that's good. But the dividing issue is whether there's a difference between soul and spirit. Now, according to MacArthur and Mayhew, who I happen to agree with, the biblical evidence this doesn't really support a distinction. They're used interchangeably. So I want to show you some evidences of something called Hebrew parallelism, where soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Uh, it's kind of uh, it's a poetic device, Hebrew parallelism, where the same idea is repeated using different but synonymous words, for example. Uh, Job 7, verse 11. Well, don't have it up there. Nope, maybe I do. There we go. Job 7.11, therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit, using the uh, Hebrew word ruach, spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. The, the uh, Hebrew word for soul was nephesh. Both things basically doing the same thing. Isaiah uses the word nephesh for soul, ruach for spirit. My soul yearns for you in the night, my spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Again, Hebrew parallelism, different words meaning the same thing, doing the same thing. And then Mary said this in the New Testament using the modern uh, Greek, well, more modern Greek word psyche for soul and pneuma for spirit. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So these passages, and there are many others for the sake of time, we don't have to go into all of them. They show that the soul and the spirit seem to be interchangeable, so dichotomy seems to be the one that's more biblically justifiable. Man has two parts, body and soul slash spirit, or the immaterial and the material. And additionally, in uh, Matthew 10, verse 28, a little bit more on this subject, Jesus tells us not to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
but we should rather fear him, him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. So here, when he uses the word for soul, um, he's referring to the part of the person that exists after death, obviously. And when Jesus talks about soul and body, he doesn't seem to be talking anything else than the entire person, the, the physical part, the immaterial part. He doesn't mention spirit, the word for spirit, as a separate component, soul seems to stand for, at least when Jesus used this term, soul, as uh, part and parcel with man, the whole man. Uh, Grudem, I mentioned, I talk a little bit about Grudem. Uh, he says those who advocate for trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit, have a really hard time from Scripture defining that those two words are used differently, supporting the claim that the spirit is the part that is directly um, responsible for worship. So... Um, I think most, most Christians relying on Scripture would fall into a dichotomy view. And this may not be something many of you have ever thought about, but if it ever comes up, uh, now you're aware of that. <clears throat> Let's move on to our final topic, the origin of the soul. Now that we've talked about um, the fact that we are made up of body and soul, or slash spirit, um, this is something that helps us be different. We are a person when we have a soul. But what is the origin of that soul? Have you ever thought about this? Is the soul directly created by God at conception? Is he still actively at work creating? Or does he use secondary means like procreation? So is, is the soul created by God somewhere between conception and birth? Or are we just inheriting the soul like we do physical bodies? That's the question. Some people believe that uh, souls pre-existed and are just waiting to be connected with a physical body, but there's absolutely no scriptural basis for that, so we reject that one. <clears throat> but this idea that a soul is created by God may come partly from what David said. I'll read to you. Uh, you're all very familiar with this verse from uh, Psalm 139. He says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my, my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So the question is, is God still actively creating? We have no indication in scripture that he is still actively creating. So we don't see that that verse necessarily means God actively creating because that disagrees with what we, everything we learned in Scripture, that God ceased creation after day six and rested on the seventh day. We have no scriptural justification for God still creating. So that leaves us with the idea that God did uh, use natural means for procreation. He is still the ultimate first cause, omnicausality, but he does use second, I'm pointing at Kimberly because she mentioned that word a few weeks ago, omnicausality. He is still the ultimate cause, of the process, but he has blessed and given us procreation as a secondary means. So that would seem to be um, a complex unity of body and soul and spirit that comes through a God-ordained procreation process. Again, I don't know if anybody's ever thought of that, but these are questions that people have grappled with, and we're trying to understand these things through a biblical perspective. So this is where we're going to have to stop for this week. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we looked at the sudden creation of man, God's ability to create suddenly, which led us to Adam as a historical person. We talked about the implications of that, how important these things are. 
We looked a little bit about race, that we're all created in the image of God, related to one another through Adam, through Noah. And then we looked at um, what it means to be different from the animals, what constitutes a human body and soul. And then we talked finally about the origin of the soul. These things are fascinating to me. I hope you learned as much as I did. I hope God will bless this lesson. But we're not done yet. This is just an introduction to anthropology. We still have more topics. We haven't touched on things like gender. I figure that might come up. Uh, The nature of sin. Many other topics. So we've got a couple more weeks on biblical anthropology. So I'm going to stop here and invite you to come back next week. And we will see you in 15 minutes for worship.